You're listening to Fab Radio, um, international.com. Uh, my name is Ed Fortune, and you're in fact listening to Brave New Words Live. Woo! Uh, we, are, we, are, we are here at the landing at Media City in an audience full of thousands. Um, and we have the absolute pleasure of uh, having some lovely authors here live on the stage with us. So, uh, starting, I'm here with... Yeah, uh, well, sorry, technicality, I'm not an author, I'm a publisher actually, my name's George from Unsung Stories, um, I edited the 2084 anthology and won the stories that's uh, up for the Brave New Words Award later today. Ooh. Thank you. Um, <laughs> hello, I'm, I'm, I'm Jeanette Ng, I, I, I wrote a book, it's called Under the Pendulum Sun, it's alright. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it's very good actually. It is extremely good. I'm um, Adrian Tchaikovsky, I'm my book Dogs of War is also um, up for the award tonight although I suspect it's very much uh, trailing behind looking at the quality of the other contestants and we're also here with and I'm Del I'm not a lovely author I'm just part of the Brave New Words team and I I, I like the words that the authors write uh, and I'm producer Al and I will be attempting to steer us back when we inevitably deviate <laughs> So I should actually, just before we get started, this is a really, this is, we, we've done live shows before, and this is perhaps the strangest live show I've ever done, um, given the fact that this is a pretty much untested venue when it comes to this sort of thing, and it's not really, it was going to be a multimedia festival, then it became a media festival, and now it's mostly a film festival with some book stuff attached, because we were, next year we'll have loads and loads of more multimedia stuff, but right now we're kind of trying out and like te- experimentally testing uh, extra bits of media. So it's kind of been a kind of fun journey getting there, but um, we're, in, we're live in Media City, and apparently... I feel like we, more thousands of audience members came in and then everything died. So I, I think, it, I think it, that the audience it all did went, that. It all went horribly, horribly wrong as soon as the absolutely lovely Mike Royce turned up. So apparently we have audience. Um, <laughs> obviously we had audience of thousands beforehand. We're not listening, lying to you at all. So uh, I'm going to uh, attempt to um, go through some book news. If no. Before that, shall we have a lovely jingle? Let's have a lovely jingle. This, this is Fabrian International. That that was lovely. <laughs> what a lovely jingle that was. My favourite jingle. <laughs> in, indeed. <laughs> I, I feel like our breathing really added to the experience. Uh, that as well. That, uh, that also helps uh, all the time. So let's talk about why we're here in the first place. Um, so, Del, do you want to explain the judging process? I don't know. Can explain the judging process? Yes. Um, so, Starburst magazine, and their, it have their fantasy awards this evening, um, and they've named one of the awards Brave New Words. It's a lovely book-based award, um, and they allowed Ed, for some reason, the ability to judge it. Um, <laughs> he, he put together a team, which consisted of three of the Brave New Words team, um, and no, and one more? Uh, Alistair oh. Stewart is yeah. the guy who owns the um, the broadcasting empire that is Podcastle. So he's famous for doing short audio works, essentially. Mm. Uh, he's also possibly the genre literature's most uh, like MVP sort of thing. He's a, he's very much a, you know he's always he reads an awful lot. He knows an awful lot about the industry. So uh, mm-hmm. we dragged him along. And um, it was four it's four members of the Brave New Words team. That's why I got confused. Um, so yeah, and we have over since the shortlist been announced. We went through all the books and formed our own opinions about each one, and then all got together and had a big chat about it. And, and now we're here, but uh, that's um, not till later. Yeah, and three three of the the lovely people who are um, nominated are here, which we've just introduced them. I'm going to try and get through some book news. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, that was sort of book news. It, it's taken like 10 minutes just to get to the start of the show, which is kind of impressive. <laughs> um, so apparently the, the culture is to come to TV. Uh, and by that, I don't mean just like culture in general. Um, <laughs> so presumably it won't be on Channel 4 or Channel 5. Um, so the culture is to come to uh, TV. Ian M. Banks, the late great Ian Banks, uh, wrote a novel called Consider Phlebas. Uh, which is the first of the culture series. Our audience appears to have vanished again. No, obviously our audience is massive. Um, Uh, Oh, no, that's there. I can see it. Oh, right. No, okay. Um, (laughs) 
It, it, it's regarded as the, the, the first and highly regarded first novel. It's that weird thing that people try and do where they're like, here is a series of standalone novels, I have to read the first one. <laughs> but I, 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 no, I get that. Yeah, I but, get that. Yeah, and I think if you think Discworld, the easiest way to tackle Discworld is to read them chronologically. Do you think? I'm not convinced by that at all. I think, N- not I think the easiest world to tackle for Discworld is to jump in at about book four or five. <laughs> I mean, that's the way you should, but <laughs> if, you, if you're scared... <laughs> But it's like how they started adapting The Colour of Magic first, despite the fact that it's probably not the... Well, it's no one's favourite. It's a very di- it's because he's doing a very different type of thing when yeah. he's, he's writing it. Yeah, um, not to diss The Colour of Magic, it's just it's no one's... Adrian will now say it's actually his favourite. Um, <laughs> <Nope. describe laughs> <one, but, laughs> um, everyone knows Small Gods is the best one. I think with oh any no. books, it, yeah, if, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and George not realise he's about to set Ed off for about like, the rest of the show. I, I love Small God, Gods, and therefore George is my new best friend. Um, <laughs> this is good news because the award's not been announced yet, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> still, still time. <laughs> I think with any book series, if somebody sets out to write a series, it may take them a few books to get into their stride. Mm. So, yeah, so actually jumping in at about book four or five might not be a terrible place if you then loop back around at some point. But also Discworld, there are numerous charts as to where you might want to start depending on what you feel in the mood to read. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different arcs involved in it for one thing. You've got to pick up, like, do you want, like, Rincewind, or do you want the witches, or do you want the guards, and all the rest of it? So, depending on your preference, and there, given they kind of cover every genre within the series anyway. Yeah. Which is why, dragging it back to Ian and Banks, it seems odd that they will pick that specific one to start with. I'm really pleased they're picking that one to start with, to be honest, because, like, the culture's huge. Like, if they just jumped in and tried to do player games straight away, it's going to be a shambles and it's going to be a mess. Um, so I kind of like the fact that Phlebas is at least more sort of limited in the narrative. It's much more kind of like the quest and the, you know... But it's, given it's, the taste of, of modern TV and everyone's like really excited by Game of Thrones, surely the place you start is use of weapons. Because use of weapons is easily the darkest of the entire series. I suppose consider Phlebas has probably a bit more of a traditional narrative structure than a lot of the ones that follow it. It's also got a sequel course with a look i think look to windward which means if they are looking at a, a series rather than saying well we've done that one we now have a new series with completely different characters that has very little relation to the one you've just seen they have material they can go to direct from banks which at least yeah you know, shares a few characters and directly links on isn't look to windward set towards the the decline of the culture though uh it's a lot it's certainly set a lot later but i know that there are some of the sort of the ai characters that are in the First, are still around for it, and are key players in it, or am I misremembering that? Um, I think I think the, the minds are still there. We should kind of for, for the casual listener, uh, the culture novels are. I'm going to I'm going to have a pop at, at explaining the, the setting as simply as possible. Uh, it's a vast. The culture is a vast spacefaring society that lives in space. So they're, they're not from a planet. They were at some point, but they, their their environment is space. And because space is everywhere and huge, and their resources are bountiful, they pretty much chill and they're ex- they're, they're hyper liberal, hyper relaxed. Um, they have minds, AIs, um, who are just there to basically look after everyone, but also have their own fun. And there's this wonderful concept they have called infinite fun space, which is this. If you are a, a hyper-intelligent supermind, you want to spend 99.9% of your time playing World of Warcraft. Um, that, you know, your own version of World of Warcraft that you've invented in your brain. And you play World of Warcraft with all these other supercomputers that are also occasionally space battleships and planetoids and Dyson spheres and all sorts of weird stuff. Um, but of course, in order to keep playing, to pay your subscription to keep playing World of Warcraft, you have to make sure that the universe is safe that your galaxy is safe, that the organic things aren't going to suddenly turn up and blow you up, that nothing's going to go on. So you have to spend at least a small amount of time keeping civilization ticking over. And the way they do that is they have a thing called special circumstances, and special circumstances occasionally pop over to other cultures and go, yeah, you're going to enslave us in 100 years' time, so we're going to interfere. You see, I I think that bit kind of has trouble with the hyper-liberal thing, just going to put it out there, you know? They're not quite all soft and fluffy, because especially circumstances is always the centre of everything, and they just have to go and interfere, don't they? It, it, 
it, it is that it, it's a commentary by um, a very angry Scottish socialist man <laughs> on the British Empire. Um, and, you know, the, the concept of, you know, a, a small band of people going into a, a culture that they know nothing of and interfering is Jeanette. Um, <laughs> the, the, the plot of Under the Pendulum Sun, then. I suppose, but they do get kind of isolated from the rest of fairyland so so they're they're, they're not quite um but but yes it's under the pendulum sun is is is, is also a direct a commentary on this kind of colonial um let's go interfere with other people and what they're doing um mindset that, that was horrendously unfair of me i think i might i think, <laughs> I, think I, I might actually be heading towards a second news item which is, which is amazing <gasps> Ooh, and, um, and we're only 20 minutes in i think you should because when you started talking about special circumstances to me that sounds like something that you get an extension for an essay at university for so <laughs> the, the dog ate my homework <laughs> Before we move on, I do. I just want to kind of get a moment for Dave Hutchinson because he just tweeted, "Rou, don't f this one up, Jeff." <laughs> <laughs> um, the, there is a running gag with the spaceships from the culture novels uh, that they have names like GSV and then a, a witticism, um, and it's become part of the real world culture because Elon Musk's own spaceship drones are named after drones from the um, uh, from the culture novels. So we have actual real spaceships in the real world named after Ian M. Banks' science fiction, which I think is brilliant, to be honest. Uh, and also incredibly nerdy, which makes me kind of happy. Uh, right, so I'm getting on to the second item. Uh, a London Book and Screen Week showcases Shelley. Um, so uh, a London Book and Screen Week 2018 is running in April, um, uh, middle of April, 9 to, 9 to 15. We won't be there because it's in London. It says so. <laughs> London, we are based in Manchester. Um, I won't be there, George, uh, George. You might be able to make it, but um, uh, yes. Um, you live in London. I do. Yeah, oh. I've, I've, I've come up from that there, London, for this thing here today. Okay. He, he travelled on a Virgin train okay. and didn't take advantage of the infinite tea. Oh. Um, I thought. In, oh. Infinity. No. No, I was, no. No, Never they mind. have an infinite tea service. I mean, they call it first class, but it's not actually first class. It's the infinite tea service. That's what it's for. Um, infinite tea is not a good thing, all right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so London Book and Screen Week run, uh, it runs middle of April and is promising to celebrate 200 years of science fiction. And by that, they mean, of course, Frankenstein. Uh, and they're doing Frankenstein the Reincarnation, which sounds messy, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, and it's got um, biographer Fiona Sampson, uh, MBE, uh, and it doesn't say MBE actually on my notes, but she is an MBE, and, as for, and I know that because I talked to Fiona recently. And uh, novelist Nick Harkaway are going to discuss her groundbreaking work and then do a film screening of, of Frankenstein. Oh, Which oh, version? Screening? Uh, uh, he said film, he said film. film. I said film. film. Oh, cool. Uh, it's a this, regional accent. Is, is this where we get bogged bog down last time I talked about warships? <laughs> uh, and everyone was like, what, your ships? I was like, oh. So which adaptation are they showing? Because there's been like 59 of them or something ridiculous. I have a feeling it might be the movie called Frankenstein, The Reincarnation, yeah. to be honest. Um, but but I, I'm not sure you should... Like, If you reincarnate Frankenstein, does that mean you're reincarnating the monster? Reincarnating the book because there are quite a few um, Frankenstein-inspired works that are out or imminent, um, like um, Frankenstein in Baghdad, which has the idea of um, an outsider art project where um, to raise awareness of how many people are being killed, where they, where someone has collected all the unclaimed body parts and started kind of sewing them together as sort of outsider art in the in the story, oh, and God. then. One day, which is really grim, incidentally. <laughs> um, um, and then one day, um, this... Well, it, it disappears. Um, the art project disappears. And then murders start happening. And, um, and yes, um, you, you can fill in the rest of the gaps and read it yourself. Um, Who wrote that? Um, uh, Ahmed, Ahmed Sadawi. Oh, right, OK, yes. That, that, that makes sort of sense. Oh, uh, yeah, Ed, Jeanette made notes. Yes, yes, just, just so you know, someone's prepared. That's terrifying. Um, but yes, is, is, is Shelley, in fact, the first science fiction author? 
Can we can we oh. make that claim? Fiona Sampson told me that it definitely she was. Wasn't it some some lady? Margaret Cavendish. The, yeah, in in the northeast. <laughs> um, she wrote "Blazing uh, the Blazing World." Um, oh. Yes, and and it's it's kind of more. It's like a utopic text in the sense that she describes um, what she considers to be a utopia, which is a place. Uh, um, ruled by an empress, and there are these all these like different types of animal people who do science um, and debate theology and write scientific poetry um, under um, her kind of Mary Sue characters' um, guidance. And, and and you know I, I find that very sympathetic. Um, who doesn't want to be a god empress with um, with bird people doing science for them? Um, and when, <laughs> when, when is Cavendish writing then? Um, the nineteenth century, isn't it? 17. Because they're, they're in, they're, you, I think even before then you have a quite, quite a lot of sort of, oh, I went to the moon and this is what I found yeah, there. Yeah, there's Kepler's Somnarium, isn't there? Yes, well, um, this, is, um, uh, this is sort of 17th century. Um, and, and she herself was quite active in the sciences. Um, um, she was one of the, the first women to, to sit in at the Royal Society stuff, but she couldn't be a member because she was a woman. And uh, she wrote loads of poetry about atoms. Um, and she... And, and um, she always described her her poet, poetry as a, a weaving with her mind. She, she, put, she put the science into the fiction, as it were. Yes, um, and and so it's sort of um, I, I would I would say she's I, I would I would say she's one of the first rather than um, Mary Shelley, but um, uh, she does kind of she doesn't have successes the way uh, Mary Shelley did. I suppose it feels like it kind of comes down to a discussion on what people mean by the origin because you've and I think that but that's a discussion in many types of of book genre where we can say this person did a thing way before the person that's recognized but one of the reasons why the person that's recognized is recognized is because they shaped something that created more directly the thing we know now um but I always find those conversations really interesting. The beginnings of things are such a, an interesting point. Um, but I think there's a new... They've released um, Frankenstein 1818 this year, haven't they, as, as part of the anniversary? And it's the original draft that she wrote, which apparently... I, I, want, I, I want it, I want to read it. Um, because apparently... So much was changed in editing by the the male editors that um, it, apparently the original writing has a lot more of a, a feminist aspect to it. Um, and so much was changed in editing that all this time we've been saying Mary Shelley was kind of one of the, the founders of sci-fi as we see it. But actually, a lot of what we know weren't actually her words. So I, I'm really intrigued by 1818. Um, I would be really interested to see more examination of how much women in, the history of women in, in literature has been changed by male editors. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because it, it seems a really common thing to have happened all the way through. Like you know, even going, you know, even looking at things like James Tiptree, where James Tiptree exists because of the sexism in the industry. Because uh, James Septree, spoiler alert, was a woman. Um, so it's it, it, I want to see, I want to know more about that. If you happen to be a passing expert, uh, we're on Twitter at Radio Bookworm, um, and unless someone else wants to, to leap in about Frankenstein, our audience has, has it's been amazing. It's quadrupled <laughs> in, in size, <laughs> and as you know, we already have thousands. So the room is now straining of people. What I find quite interesting about Frankenstein and Dawn of Frankenstein is why he's green, um, because that's an artefact of um, black and white movies, um, and how in order, because of the colour shift, in order for something to look pallid um, or white, um, that it needed to be green in the real world, um, um, so that it would film right. Um, so all, all black and white movies have crazy colour palettes, um, in order to look right on screen. The same way a black would actually be usually be a red. Um, and um, it's the same thing for um, Dracula. He was, he would be wearing green makeup. But the thing is, um, this that didn't get out in the public, except for the fact that when they were filming Frankenstein, they allowed reporters on set, and they wrote about it. And once they wrote about it, it became true because they described <laughs> Frankenstein as having green skin. Um, and that became true, and that became true for the posters, and then that just um, 
well, that became true of all subsequent Frankensteins. Um, there's a wonderful picture of, I think it's a set of the Munsters, or possibly the Adams Family. It's the Adams Family and it's pink. It's yeah. bright pink. I remember once when I was little watching an episode of um, Blue Peter and Connie Huck had blue triangles on her face and we didn't really know why and after a while they explained because it was, a, it was an episode about the history of television and she was saying about when they initially started screen and it was all black and white and they realised like you said you can't see features properly makeup on um, women wasn't showing and so they realised that if they put their blusher on in blue it was the only way to show the definition in their cheekbones so they all had these like really stark blue triangles on their cheeks for, for definition in, in one of the very early um, Jackal and Hyde films, they did the transformation from Jackal to Hyde in one take. Wow. But, and, no one, and for ages, no one knew how they'd done it. And how they did it was they, you just kept changing the filters on the camera and they had a sex, essentially a series of makeup on the actor that different filters would pick up came out on his face. That's clever. It's, it's That's very clever. so amazing. The things that people used to have to use for special effects because there was no way of doing it unless you did it physically. There's a, a, One of my favourite films is a French film from the 50s called Orphée and it's a, a rural French 50s take on the story of Orpheus. And um, in it, when he's taken to the, the other realm um, or like the realm of the dead, um, there's like this death character who, who's in and out all the time and the way that you do it is you have to wear these special gloves and the special gloves are the only way you can enter the realm and actually what it was was because they didn't have CGI they made a mirror out of um, running molten mercury so obviously you can't walk through mercury so if you had the gloves on what they showed were the actors hands going through this mirror but obviously it looks like they are they go through this mirror and then the next shot would be them like, on the other side having having come through um, and there's bits where like this castle is doing like an inception roll around and it's it's phenomenal like if you wanted an effect you had to think of an interesting way probably using science to do so it was just, I love stuff like that it's incredible yeah there are those incredibly seamless shots where they have people walking away from each other kind of one step at a time so that they kind of you know create the, the look of people yeah. you get some very early tracking shots as well that are literally it tracks at a certain pace and people either step in or out of the shot with tables fully laden like <laughs> split second timing stuff so that oh. it looks right as you get past the camera oh. gets past them or even the very iconic one in um, Wizard of Oz where it's actually Judy Garland's um a body double um, you see walking in order to, to so that you can have the black and white because she's she's in colour in one of them and she's black and white in the other and so she has to have a body double to uh. the black and white version for example there's a, there's a fascinating thing I was reading and I can't remember the exact references so forgive me but um, you know that kind of 70s disco look to a lot of sci-fi and we just think oh well obviously they're, they're being camp and disco there's a reason for it there's a whole host of uh, 50s and 40s and 50s science fiction stories, so novels, getting back to books, um, <laughs> what? where what the authors have done is they described the youth, the rebellious youth, as essentially wearing dazzle patterns, because dazzle patterns were a thing in the 40s and 50s of a way of disguising ships and a way of disguising really things. So what people do in these science fiction novels is they dress themselves in dazzle patterns so they have that that disco look to them with the, the, the different kind of the weird hair and the different stripes. So a whole load of early TV science fiction uses this as an idea because they take it directly from the book misinterpret it entirely, other people see it and then you end up with the disco inferno monsters from, uh, from <laughs> Doctor Who and the Mavellans and this sort of thing and it's a misinterpretation of a misinterpretation the actual idea, young people dress themselves up in dazzle patterns so they can't get seen by camera um, observation uh, dates back as an idea to, to write as like Zamatane so you know it's an old idea which is then ended us with an age of disco. It's really kind of <laughs> like, like an odd way. Um, I, I feel I'm, we've drifted. I feel we have. Shall we, <laughs> shall we, shall we try going on to the next um, item, which Ooh, I've, suddenly, this could I've, get suddenly, punchy. I've suddenly seen what it is. Yay! Well. <laughs> right, does anyone here actually like Terry Goodkind? I don't even know who Terry Goodkind is. Hey. He's um, the man who says silly things. Yeah, no, that I got, yeah. So... I think we're going to try and go through this quickly and get back onto another movie-related one, because they're more fun. Can, um, I, can I just offer one thought on, on Terry Goodkind? 
There's a guy called Jim C. Hines, who a few years ago, I think he maybe even got a Hugo nomination or something for it, but he decided that he was going to recreate a bunch of book covers, the ones with women on, and actually do it himself. Now, he's this kind of slightly, well, completely normal-looking guy, a bit like David Cross from Arrested Development, you know? Um, and he's kind of putting on the crop tops, and he's trying to twist and get his bum into the frame, and he's holding the samurai swords, and he's posing, and it's just a work of beauty. So take a moment to check out Jim Hines. Jim Hines does sexy lady poses. <laughs> yeah, well, it's to send, you know, it's kind of to point out a problem that Terry Goodkind failed to see for some god reason, so... So the actual news item is that Terry Goodkind, in case you missed it, uh, he's a he's a long-running fantasy author who has a who's a set audience. So there's people who will always buy his books, um, and he put on Facebook on social media the the cover of his latest novel, and then he insulted the cover of his latest novel, saying that it was laughably bad, and and weirdly the artist got in touch and was like, "Excuse me, all of your covers are laughably bad, pretty much." Uh, or words, words to that effect um, describing the author as totally disrespectful the rest of the community then responded by being really nice to cover artists for like, the rest <laughs> of the I love the community so much but is, uh, forgive me but I thought that like most authors have got at least like a passing approval on the cover art for their book mm. unless they were being horribly objectionable about if it if had so, authors like, and an editor to, yeah. to well you I mean God knows I'm not in that kind of um, sales league as Terry Goodkind, but I certainly get consulted, and my yeah, my agent comes to me and says, "What do you think of this?" And if we we there have been covers we we said, "Well, we'd like some stuff changed," and that that sort of thing goes through. So I'm not. I mean, it seems odd that it could get to that point without someone of that influence having an input. I suspect maybe he just didn't care until it came out. <laughs> it, it, it's weird because it's Terry Goodkind because a lot of writers don't necessarily have that sort of influence um, especially newer writers and um, a lot of covers have controversially ended up with um, white characters on the cover when it's actually uh, about people of colour, things like that Or so it, there is a long and sordid history about cover art but Terry Goodkind is not highlighting any of it and nor does it really apply to someone with that kind of sales figures so it's all kind of confusing especially since it doesn't look that different from any of his other books yeah including the one before by the same artist um, is he just being a contrary so-and-so i think he's just a grumpy old man you know um i think did, oh. um, on a happier note i'm fairly sure my cover artist john coltart is responsible for at least 95 percent of my book sales so shout out to john there um, this is something we do unsung, incidentally, because we, we find debuts and we're very much focused on emerging writers. And one of the things we do is we find a different artist every time and we talk to the, the author before we kind of sign them up and make sure they're happy. And then we come back later on to try and get it right. And um, we haven't always got it right, but we have always worked it through with the artist and the author so that everyone gets happy at the end of it. Um, and hopefully the books come out looking pretty good. I'm going to not say that myself. I'll wait for someone else to verify, but I like them. I think an interesting thing that as well is to get cross about the terrible nature of art that was inspired by your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that potentially <laughs> says quite a lot. You That's me. Terry Goodkind, not me, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I think there can a lot to be said about trends in cover art, but you could do that when talking about the trends rather than insulting individual artists and their work, because the work is often very, very good. Just sometimes they don't necessarily reflect the book or there is there, there are like like Jim Hines's you know um, sexy cover art ladies um, um, ongoing thing in cover art where where you have kind of boobs and butt poses and things yeah and artists are normally working to brief as well yeah exactly so you don't it, it's not about there's a difference between calling out an individual artist and their work and saying nasty things about them versus trying to talk about a trend and Totally. Yeah. Yeah. The, at the risk of sounding incredibly vicious, if I, I'm not an art, I, and I'm not an artist, but if you were like Ed, draw me, say I suddenly magically have the talents of an artist, draw me a Terry Goodkind cover that covers a Terry Goodkind novel, I'd draw something fairly bland. To be <laughs> so many angry emails coming in. So many. But, oh, but, you think people listen to the show? <laughs> <laughs> 
but it's he's just one of those artists that I, I'd kind of forgotten about him because he he has a set audience and he has a fixed audience and he has a following and people like his stuff and he's one of those writers that's been writing very similar novels all the way and there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with a kind of with a set world that people can escape into and enjoy it, none of his books have ever entertained me in the slightest they've made me slightly annoyed and slightly sad and then slightly worried that I'm wasting my life and apart from that I've kind of, I, I just kind of stop uh, I, I, I just find I feel cynically that maybe he had a go at his artist as a way of staying relevant because it's a good way of rattling, you know, it's a saber rattling thing that will cause people to get angry and all it led to is lots of people sharing some really good art. I got to see a whole load of Sarah Ann Langton stuff I hadn't seen before, and I think she's a great cover artist. I suppose so. it is quick PR. A lot of people are talking mm. about him who haven't mm. talked about him in a long time. Mm. Um, I suppose they have cancelled his TV show. Oh, didn't know that. Yeah, Sword of Truth got a TV show, like a, a TV series. Um, lots of red leather, quite attractive ladies and lots of red leather, because plot. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy that you're wearing a red leather jacket. <laughs> Related. I am not a sexy dominatrix slot assassin. But it, it is plot relevant. <laughs> That's a clear path. But no, so it's recently been axed? Um, not super recently. Oh, but okay. It had like a, a season a couple of years ago. It wasn't reviewed very well from what I remember. I didn't even know about it. So the, they're very bad at making low-budget fantasy, though, out of novels. I, I remember the, the Elfstones of Shannara... I, I can't remember what the actual Chronicles. Yeah, Chronicles. Chronicles. And um, I, I interviewed, I forget his name, uh, played Gimli at the, uh, on the Lord of the Rings movies. Jonathan Reese. Jonathan Reese. That's it. Jonathan Reese Davis. Yes, and not he, Jonathan Reese Myers. No. No. Uh, he's, he, no. <laughs> and he was lovely all the way through the interview, and towards the end of the interview, he then gave me his political, in, uh, political opinion about everything. And I was like, <laughs> that's, that's just not going in. Um, <laughs> We should move on to the next news yeah, item. We really should, but but he was convinced that the Elfstone, the, the Shinora Chronicles were, were going to run and run and run and run, and it got cancelled after two seasons, I think. Uh, what, they, did they make a second season? Yes. Right, well, that, I, that's, I, I thought it was entertaining television. Yeah, I liked it. It was, it was better than the Xena Hercules era, um, but if you're not going to put the money behind a fantasy series, then... Then you kind of you get what you get, but I thought it, yeah, I thought it was entertaining enough. I thought it had the girl from Pan's Labyrinth in it as a nice little surprise. Loved it. Aren't they rebooting Xena? I saw a tweet from Lucy Lawless. I thought complaining that they weren't rebooting it and that she felt that it was about due for one. Um, yeah, how do we make that happen? <laughs> you, I mean, it is it is kind of remarkable that we haven't seen um a, seen a new go at that. To be honest, I know, especially considering like. Like the kind of women heroes are the zeitgeist at the moment. Mm. Like, absolutely, they could reboot Xena. The the last thing I saw Lucy Lawless in was Ash versus the Evil Dead, and she was <laughs> amazing in it. The TV series version, uh, and again, not books. Um, <laughs> sh- sh- shall we move on to? Let's see, move on to the next news item. Movie makers. So staying on the subject. <laughs> of books. Oh, for goodness! This is not very books, is it? Well, no, because it's all. It's, we're at a film festival. Oh, I see what you've done there. Uh, Movie makers are calling Major Tom, a London-based production company, Vision Free. I think my voice is going. Oh it my is, God! It yes, uh, have optioned David M. Barnett's novel, calling calling Major Tom, um, which is a really strange choice because the book is described as a heartwarming tale about an astronaut who's given up on people, um, and it's been a, a critical and commercial set, a success. So basically, it's about a guy who goes into space. Uh, as a younger man, and then kind of gets bored with the entire concept, and then people try and get him back into space as a pensioner, essentially. Um, Is he the little man on the moon in the John Lewis advert from a few years ago? (laughs) (laughs) What? The John Lewis Christmas advert a few years ago was about a little old man on the moon, and he makes friends with a little girl on Earth who watches him through a telescope. Christmas. Yeah. yeah. He lives all alone and somehow magically the delivery people can reach him. But yeah, he can't get out and make friends. <laughs> Actually, I, I always kind of have suspension of disbelief problems about astronauts. I always feel like they should be hyper sane because that's, that's who they always select for. Um, people who are just really, really sane. 
and who can perform perfectly under pressure because that's sort of the thing they test for. I don't know. People doing solo missions, though, for, for long periods of time, can we ever say that that's a completely sane... Um... Well, well, don't they put people in special, like, no, pods out in the... Well, it's not even that. They, they, one of the requirements is they kind of... They, they ask the interview and they ask you about you know, your past experiences. So they pick sort of people who are, say, pilots who have, you know, almost crashed their plane and then, you know, everything is going wrong and these are people who would pull out the instructions manual, read it whilst everything is metaphorically <laughs> or even literally on fire, fix the problem and then save everyone. <laughs> like, this is the kind of... Is, and then they'd show up at the interview and say, that's what we've done. And they'll go, yes, you are the person pe- we want. You, you perform perfectly under pressure and are seemingly, as, as the term goes, hyper-sane. Um, I, was, I was thinking about this for something I've been writing recently. And that I, if you had long-term space missions, so we should say, right, you're going to, you're going to Mars or you're, you're, you know, you're going to be on a, a 40-year journey at top speed to the next star system or something, would you necessarily want someone who was stain, sane in a standard human way because you know, the, right, you're going to be completely out of touch with all of human human life and development for your entire lifetime. And if you ever come back, the world will be completely changed. Do you want someone who's who's sane? Because human sanity is based on being in that human sphere, surely. On the other hand, do you want to colonise Mars with misanthropes? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think... I mean, I think that's why I kind of love the term hypersane because it's sort of... It describes a state that we we don't even necessarily isn't necessarily even neurotypical um in the sense of you you don't perform quote-unquote most people would panic rather than pull out the instruction manual and start reading it and and problem solve in that very methodical um keeping their head on right kind of way um but but like talking about the long-term mission i I kind of think of hannah our friend shout out to hannah um who who um who is um part of the mars hundred who um uh, and and they've talked quite extensively about their experiences um, about how you know making that decision of if they go on a one way trip to Mars are they are they prepared for that and how they feel about that sort of thing and, and I find it very moving and inspiring in a way that is not even slightly misanthropic um, but perhaps I'm just being too um, like applying real world things to the science fiction and my friends and wanting to I wanted it to be a book about Hannah basically <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't a book about Hannah where she doesn't just get an allotment they. and have lots of poop and potatoes they <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah oh sorry uh, I, I kind of yes no I'm completely completely lost sorry um <laughs> Next book news. There is a there is an ongoing thing in science fiction though about isolation. Um, George Orwell Martin keeps loving loving in his science fiction because he also writes science fiction. He does love to put brains in boxes for some reason. He has this whole obsession where it's like, oh, it's a long term space mission. The way we'll do that is we'll take your consciousness and we'll put you in a box. And it's like, oh, it's always struck me as kind of weird and cruel, but also uh, you just sit there going, really, George, really? Going out on a limb, did George R. R. Martin pick Futurama? Um, oh, sorry, you took me a second. Uh, I think he did, actually. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> he, also, he also picked beauty as well, rather than truth, when we asked him truth or beauty. I, I don't think anyone's surprised by that, to be honest. Mm. So. Um, so a brain in a box, but a very good-looking brain in a box. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most beautiful part of the body. So Yeah, said. I love my connectome. Yes, indeed. Um, so, uh, more book news. Wow. Okay, so, um, Golant has oh, snapped... Oh, God, this is really fantastic. Oh, is, why, why, why have I picked this as a news article? <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, Golant has snaps up Icelandic fantasy. Everyone's going to let me go for this, because well of genre imprint, Golant, I can pronounce that, have, have acquired... Oh, there's a thing about Victor Golant. He said stalling for time. <laughs> um, Having failed to pronounce the word imprint correctly. Victor Golant was on um, Hitler's blacklist. Oh. As a subversive author? Yeah, as, as a subversive person. Ah. Um, because, because of the science fiction, because he was like you know, famously liberal, uh, um, yeah, essentially, okay. had they gotten to England, he would have been first against the wall. Brilliant. So, so anyway, um, yeah, it's a, there's, a, there's a thing to be proud of. Uh, well-loved genre imprint Golant have acquired the rights to Alexander Dan Williams Hansen's got that wrong, a debut novel, Shadows of the Short Days. It's now he's better known for being the vo- lead vocalist on cult black metal band Carpe Noctum, 
and he also edits Icelandic uh, science fiction and fantasy anthology mag- magazine Weird Stories. <laughs> uh, that's not what it says in my script. No, that's not what it says. That's something uh, different, Ed. It's Weird Stories in English, and I will attempt to pronounce it in Icelandic. Uh, again, if you want to tweet us at Radio Bookworm, uh, if anyone else wants to have a go, please do so. I'm going to go for Fuda Uge Sugar. Sugar? I put an extra vowel in there. Fuda, Fuda, no, Weird Stories. Um, <laughs> so, so, yes. But it's apparently set in an alternate Reykjavik where magic and industry clash. Uh, it'll be available both in Icelandic and English. Because there's the thing about a lot of Icelandic authors is that they can, they, they've got very fluent English. And the English-speaking market is larger because of American, mostly. So what they do is they write the books simultaneously in both languages. Um, there's actually a genuine concern in Iceland that the Icelandic language is um, going to fade out into um, being non-existent because everybody reads um, their Kindles in English and a lot of their media is imported and therefore in English. Um, and there's and because they do business internationally, that's in English. And there is a genuine concern that the Icelandic language is going to die out. When I was there in January, we were in the bookshop and the um, English section had a lot more books in it than the Icelandic kind of well I would say Icelandic section it's it was a bookshop in Reykjavik and I think it's just because the the population of Iceland is so small but it's they're about all published <laughs> one in ten of them is published so, but there's like there's like 28,000 people or something 20,000 of them live in Reykjavik um but I think because it's such a small population even if they're all published sorry um but it, it probably doesn't make as much financial sense if the majority of the readers there read in English um why spend money publishing books in Iceland I don't, I don't agree with it but I can see the the reasoning behind it I don't think it will die out I don't think that the Icelandic people would allow that because there's a lot of pride there they've spent a lot of time preserving their heritage and and who they are um but I do yeah when I was there I kind of noticed that most people will just speak to anyone in English because they'd rather offend one of the few Icelandic people around than offend the majority of, of tourists or just it kind of through a law of averages you're more likely to be speaking to someone who who speaks English as a first language than someone who speaks Icelandic as a first language they have just a beautiful literary culture just the whole fact that like it's like 95 percent of the population read a book a year um they're just super literate don't they have a um, Christmas thing that involves yes, reading books like yeah. some um yeah they have a Christmas uh, Christmas thing where they, they they give books and read it and like 75 percent of the population gives book for Christmas and it's just really that just sounds amazing remind me what I we mean I think <laughs> no, no, see, they do it here. It's just the book you get is called, like, I Love Pooh from your auntie. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. Um, yeah the, 20, the 2018 best countries in the world to live in best happiness indexes <laughs> thing has just come out, and basically the Scandinavia countries are in the top, all, every place in the oh, top five. Um, they also have um, sort of amazing kind of um, um, in- literary festival where they, they publish books for one night only and then burn all the copies um, <gasps> and things like that where they oh. well it, it's, about, it's about ephemeral art you see um, oh. um, and then like every other one of them is in some kind of obscure band that, of a genre that I've, I've barely heard of because they're just that much cooler than me <laughs> didn't Margaret Atwood do a similar thing where she like had a one reading and then locked the book away for a thousand years or some, some such Art, kind of, there it is, it's gone, unless, you, unless you happen to be very old. But, uh, but the whole point of having a book is it, it can kind of stick around and outlive you and, and, and be around a hundred years rather than, you know, like, there is ephemeral art, but surely books are not mm. supposed to be? I feel like that's, that feels like that, that's an experience more for the author than, than anyone else. That's, I speak to an extent, it is, it is art, but that's why books are entertainment as well as as art um i'm a true believer in that idea of the the writer isn't the um isn't the end point in any story there's it's a relationship and the end point of the story is the reader because they will take those words but in the end they are the person that creates that world and they complete that story and so to do that is to actually leave a book with without a finished process it for, for me i'm reminded of a book that appeared on my desk a number of years ago where, and it was a self-published work, and I don't normally read self-published works, but I'd been encouraged by 
someone with a scampish heart, shall we say, to read this. <laughs> and I got about two chapters in, and then suddenly it started giving me recipes for pie and, and recipes for soup. And there was a whole bunch of just recipes. Like, something would happen, then they would explain at length for recipe, and then something else would happen. And they would explain at length for recipe. And I caught up with the author, and he was like, I wasn't expecting anyone to actually read it. I just, I just wanted it there. So, so I started putting my recipes in there just to bulk it out. <laughs> for a moment there, I thought you were talking about Kim Stanley Robinson's book, where you have a recipe for, um, um, for various um, galactic... Um, space phenomenon as, nope. as, a, as a narrative device where how to make a galaxy and, unless, it, unless this particular black hole had delicious carrots in it, no <laughs> I'm just imagining now someone giving advice to a starting off thing. I really want to write and get a cookbook published oh no, cookbooks don't sell, you should write a sci-fi book and sneak the recipes in <laughs> it's Arguably some of George Orwell Martin's best work when you think about it, because there's an awful lot of feasts in there, and you can just like, are you hungry? Are you on a diet, George? Seriously. Um, shall, 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 shall I be in danger of going on to another, another item? Uh, this is almost oh. an advert, actually. Um, Dublin 2019 announces a price rise. So, right, so Dublin 19, I might be biased because I'm actually wearing, when we record this, it's um, St. Patrick's Day. Yes. Uh, and because it's in Patrick's Day, I'm actually wearing a Dublin 2019 T-shirt. That's my excuse. It's not just because I'm a tramp. Um, <laughs> but Dublin 2019 and Irish Worldcon has announced the following changes to its membership. Uh, essentially, uh, after April, 20, April the 3rd, 2018, uh, the costs are going up uh, for the tickets. Now, at the moment, it's €100 Euros if you've never been to one before. And... It's 160 euros if you've been to one before, because uh, they're trying to encourage new people to come, and that's going to go up to 180. And basically, most of the prices are going to go up by about 10 to 20 euros. Have, have uh, Worldcon just never heard of early bird? Is do they think this is a new concept? Why is this? Why why is this news? <laughs> <laughs> because if you want to get in at the cheap price, you should buy it now. I was going to say, as soon as I got this brief, I went off and bought my ticket, so it was news to me. <laughs> I've saved my whole ten euros. <laughs> I think it's, it's the price more... of a drink at the World Cup. Oh, yeah, no, it really is. <laughs> Definitely in Helsinki. See, I've never made it to one before, and I feel a bit sort of cheated because I got into the whole publishing block shortly after it was in the UK. So it was basically about five miles down the road from me. And, you know, about a month later, I was like, oh, that would have been really good, wouldn't it? <laughs> you should definitely go to Dublin then, because, like, you can just fly there loads from London. It's like 36 flights a day or something. Aren't we doing the Adventure Week? We, we are doing the Week of Insanity, where we're going to do... Yeah, it's an error, but... So, so, um, so... Th- for those who don't know, know the entire drop, uh, that August in 2019, there will be nine worlds in London. A week later, there will be Worldcon in Dublin. Then there'll be Eurocon in Belfast. If one was completely insane, one would go to all three on all three weekends. Uh, you've got to remember these are three, uh, these are three to five day events, each of them. <laughs> so what you're essentially doing is devouring as many books as possible by pouring them into your brain through getting very drunk and talking to authors. Um, I think the plan is to try and do two, so we're going to try and do Worldcon and Belfast. Yeah. yeah. Um, have like a nice little road trip. Have a nice little road trip. Uh, I'm I thought sure we were getting the train. I thought we were getting the train that, that, that Dave Lally is like pushing like a pimp. I, did, I didn't know there was... There's, a, did, oh there's, a, there's a cross-border train between Dublin and Belfast. But then we can't stop at all the lovely things in between and, well, and, and drink more. <laughs> <laughs> Who's driving in this? Not uh, Dave Lally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dave Lally is a lovely man. He's very Irish and he's every single possible... He's, a, he's like every single possible like literary Irish cliché rolled into one. <laughs> And then, and then turned into a, a literary superfan. Um, and he is an utterly lovely man, but he, you know, I, I've described him in the past as a Papa Smoff. Um, as Smoff is a secret master of fandom, that's an entirely other in-joke. Um, but he is just this, this crazy little dynamo, and I think he's about 112 as well. I, uh, I, I just want to say, I think I'm going to be too tired to go to the one in Belfast. What? Yeah. That's what the drinking's for? <laughs> Because I'm directing the opening ceremony. 
Wait, oh, okay. Hang on, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm directing the opening ceremony, which will also include the 1944 Retro Hugo's Award for content first produced in 1943. So that's going to be like my first day and a half of, of Worldcon in Dublin. I, I'm, I, I'm most impressed that your husband didn't know that. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I might have been doing it for comic effects. <laughs> might. <laughs> That should be fun. Also, also they're doing the Retro Hugo's Awards, which is so they have the Hugo Awards where people get rockets for books, which is nice. And there's always some random controversy because it sells books. He said cynically. And they also do the Retro Hugo, Hugo Awards, which are Hugo Awards given for when they didn't have the Hugo. Uh, they are Hugo Awards for years where um, either there was a World Con and there wasn't a Hugo Awards ceremony, or now they have added for years when there was not a Worldcom, which includes most of World War II. Um, and those ceremonies happen on either the 25th, 50th, or 75th, or even 100th anniversary of when the award ceremony should have been. Um, so in 2019, it will be the 75th anniversary of what would have been the 1944 Hugo Awards ceremony. But the way the Hugo Awards work, it's for the content for the previous year, so it's content produced in 1943, um, which includes a heck of a lot of movies. Um, so it's like uh, Casablanca won the uh, Best Picture Award for 1943s uh, being produced then. But it's not sci-fi. It's n- it's not sci-fi, um, but but the musical theme might be a fair part of my opening ceremony. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, there's a lot of content. Somebody, there's a guy um, on YouTube who's done a little um, trailer for the 1944 Hugo's Award ceremony, which will tell you all the content is potentially eligible to be voted for. And you, you get a, an award if you've won, and they generally try and find somebody appropriate to come and collect it. That's amazing. Mm. Like, yeah, I really like that. I think that's a lovely idea. I think basically this news piece was here so we could bimble on about Worldcon just for a bit longer. Uh, because even though it is a year away, it's, it's, it's surprising how, how it sneaks up on you. It's like birthdays. Birthdays always sneak up on me. But uh, like, you know, set, set events like that, you kind of, they are expensive for most people. Um, so we kind of have to plan them. So uh, uh, we try yes. and squeeze in a reminder. Uh, we we have more. an all-staff meeting in Dublin at the end of April, and the thing we have already discovered is that hotels are very expensive. Isn't um, Dub- Dublin in general can be quite expensive? Mm. Yeah, so, um, so so if you're going to go to Worldcon, book your ticket now and try and get accommodation sorted sooner rather than later before anything that is reasonably priced goes. Or sleep on producer Al's floor. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't get accommodation in this. No. That's not how this works. Um, shall I move on to the next news item? Okay. Uh, we're, we're approaching the end of the show. Are we? Ooh. Ooh. Uh, the Black Library. Um, dun, dun, dun. Who is... It, it, uh, it's a very geeky reason why it's called the Black Library. Black Library opened submissions window. Uh, the Black Library are the novel publishing arm of Games Workshop. Uh, they uh, basically specialise in shitty death killing space. Uh, and occasionally um, fantasy shooty death kill in fantasy land um, with magic pew pew. Can we uh, just clarify that Ed is saying shooty, <laughs> shooty death kill, shooty, shooty death kill, just before anyone tweets it. As in relate to shooting. Oh, I see, yes. No, that would be an entirely different novel. Um, yeah, no, 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 no. no that's more Chuck Tingle. Uh, anyway, um, Anyway, they have announced uh, a search for short stories. Now, they've done this before, and it's, it's a bit of an interesting submissions window because sometimes, sometimes they've like, found gold and sometimes not so much. But interestingly, the ed- editorial staff is almost entirely new now. So anyone who maybe didn't get in last time because their style didn't fit the editorial team might have a different chance. They're being uh, very kind of transparent with it as well, aren't they? Like they did um, a Twitch talk with one of the the submissions editors, didn't, didn't they? Where she was like, "This is maybe things that would help you stand out. These are things we don't see. These are things we do see. Kind of, this is how to get published with us." Yeah, this is what we want, and essentially what we want you to do is to sell our products, uh, and we we sell fantasy. We sell you know an escapist fantasy of a certain brand and we want you to help us do that because we, we need help with our world building. 
because essentially we sell very expensive pieces of plastic that look pretty, uh, and we want people to to tell stories about these expensive pieces of plastic that look pretty. Um, and they have set rules because they've been around for 30 years now. They have like set built worlds, so they want the worlds to be. And it's a very very British brand, I think. Um, someone someone once described it to me as really really dark Star Wars turned upside down. And it sort of is. And the fact that the Empire Emperor's in charge and he's the hero and all the humans are killing all the aliens and that's a good thing as opposed to Star Wars where that's the bad thing uh, and so on. But it's a, it's an interesting setting. It's interesting that, that they have this sort of open window as well. I've always had this kind of ambition when it comes to uh, Games Workshop that I've wanted to write for them but what I want to do is I want to write a story about a gift shop voucher. <laughs> So, because they say, like, you know, one of our most popular products and one of their most popular project, pro- products, of course, is a £10 voucher that, or a £20 voucher because parents have no idea what these things are. So, this is cool. I can't give you money because you want something from a game workshop. I have no you... idea that you can't get a figurine for 10 or £20. Pounds. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they've scaled them all up recently, so they're all a lot bigger than they used to be. One thing I will say, though, is I think it's really important when it comes to these sorts of things to actually look at the rules and submit what is being asked of you. Um, So, for example, they're asking for one paragraph um, and a 500-word writing sample. If you are considering entering and you have a a, a draft of an entire thing, don't send it. Send the 500-word writing sample. I know I have a lot of friends who do submissions things. And if you get loads, the easiest way to cut a pile down is to only look at the people who've met the requirements you've asked for. Oh, um, God, You yes. want to work with these people, <laughs> yeah. So even if you have a completed novel, send in the 500-word writing sample. Like, please, please, please read stuff, otherwise you are potentially cutting yourself out of a race you could have done very well in. I've used this example before, but when I was the submissions editor for comic strips for Starburst magazine, which was a a couple, I don't do it anymore. Um, the wonderful Gareth Evans does it instead. Um, but one of the things it said in very large letters was no zombies, please, and uh, nothing that can't go on the shelves in WH Smith's. And the, the first thing I had was uh, the first thing through the door was uh, naked ladies, zombie naked, naked ladies um, <laughs> with, with teeth in interesting places uh, attacking nuns. Uh, and and also it was four pages as opposed to two, and I was just like, "This is the easiest rejection." And also, I need to shower. So I mean, a nick a story from um, a friend of mine, Gary Budden from Influx Press, but he used to do um, slash pile for Ambit magazine. That's where JG Ballard used to uh, edit, and he had a submission addressed to JG Ballard like decades after he's dead. Oh. So don't do that. You know, make sure the editor's still alive. <laughs> Anyway, I, I, I think, oh, no, Rice, we, we've still got some news items left, and we are uh, head, heading to running out of time. Um, do we want to skip? us not getting through the whole news? Never. No, no. Um, I'm, I think so we should make him do the other Finland story. Yes, that's yeah. the one I want yeah. to hear, Ed. Yeah, yeah. I, I was hoping that we could do the Philip K. Dick Award so I could make some unwise puns. But, um, okay. Uh, Finland Star Rover Award finalists announced. Please tell us we're running out of time. Uh, nope, we aren't, apparently. Um, Finland's I Hate You All. <laughs> Finland's Star Rover Award, which apparently translates in Finnish as Tati Vale Taja. I can't I can't say that. I'm sorry. Uh, I, See, I want to say Hattie Fat now, but that's entirely the wrong word. <laughs> <laughs> um, you should tell us the shortlist. Oh, oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> awards uh, finalists for 2017 have just been announced. It is an award for best science fiction novel. Um, the nominees were selected by a jury. It's always a good way to do uh, nominee selections and judging, I find, he said, having just done one. Uh, the award winner will be announced in May. The shortlist is Verso by Tuman Janti, um, Melihisti by Hiki Kano, um, Pinan Ala Pimia by Juka La Jinrin. I'm really sorry to all of you. I'm really, really sorry. Look a lot by David Mitchell. Thank you. <laughs> 
aren't you? So, um, but it's a market we've just discussed. It is a, a very popular market, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that makes perfect sense. And Chumio Por Ivavan, I've got that wrong. Uh, Cavani by Johnny by Johnny Saxel. That's probably Cavani. Cavani. Yeah. Cavani. Cavani. Ah, yes. Anyway, uh, they all sound wonderful. Uh, please never let me do that again. It, it's David Mitchell, by the way. Is it, is it David Mitchell? <laughs> David, I thought. Um. <coughs> yeah. Have you ever checked out the pronunciation manual on YouTube? I think I've just worked out who's running it. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm terrible at these sort of pronunciation things. But also, you can't, under- you can't pronounce words in your first language. So I think we're, say, we're, say, 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 book. We are famously a book show where no one can actually pronounce the word book properly. The the original run of the show, the original pitch to uh, Paul Ripley uh, of the bookworm when we were, was a book show where no one can say the word book because it was myself and a wonderful wonder, uh, lady called Ninfa Hayes, uh, who's Canarian, and she says book with four extra O's and an umlaut. Um, so, so none of us could say a book. Uh, producer Al is, is from Manchester, and just about says the word book, but sounds slightly like a chicken when she does so. Book. Exactly. How is that like a chicken? Book, 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 book. Uh, go book. Yes. A book. 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 I still feel it's a great injustice the plural of book isn't beak. <laughs> <laughs> but like foot and feet, you know, in foot, feet. It, it just makes sense. But that would make the, the magazine that tells you about the, the books being produced the beak seller. <laughs> and you'd have yeah, beak shelves. Oh, that, that's a little bit like geek, isn't it? So that's oh. that kind of word. Oh, yeah. The beak, beak geek. geeks. Yeah. <laughs> that's I, amazing. I, I, I second this motion. Let's, uh, let's brand it right now. Um, it, it was um, beak in Old English, but that changed. Oh. Um, uh, because um, it, it essentially became an uncommon word, so you had an S ending instead of a vowel change. Oh. Hmm. Hang on, someone knows what they're talking about. <laughs> I'm telling you, Jeanette's done research. It's scary. Shall we, shall we try and do actual more new stuff? Uh, the Mexican Mexican X Initiative. You see, because because I've been saying Finnish stuff, I can't I can't now say Spanish, which is annoying uh, because I can speak that language. Anyway, Me- um, don't you start. Uh, Mexican X Initiative is successful. A World Con 76 guest of honour, uh, John Picasso, uh, has successfully raised enough cash to sponsor uh, 50 uh, Mexican pro, pro fans, pros and fans so they can attend the San Jose Comic Con. That's lovely. World that, Con. World Con. Sorry, Comic Con? I said Comic Con. My brain's yeah. fried. Uh, the World Con, which is lovely. Uh, that happens in San Jose this year. Uh, and that's. I think that's a really good thing. I don't think anyone can argue that it's not um, as, a, as a side to that and we were talking about book rights in Finland you'd think Spanish the Spanish rights for novels would be sewn up wouldn't you because like you know there's so many different countries in the world that speak Spanish so you'd think that you'd be able to get you know uh, a book in Argentina would be published by maybe the rights would be also available in Mexico be also available in Spain guess what no. It's not like that at all. It's isn't isn't a- it all different, slightly different variants of Spanish? It's slightly different variants of Spanish, which also means that slightly different variant variants of publishing contracts and publishing rights with different publishing traditions, which means that if you get published in uh, European Spain, they might not, on a matter of principle, publish you in Mexico. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely... It staggers me because there's some incredible writing ta- talent coming out from that part of the world. And yet, half the audience is lost. Mm. But it's like it's like Welsh. Um, Welsh in North Wales is very different to Welsh in South Wales. Like even the letters that are used for an individual word are different. I think we're starting to run out of time. Yeah. Whoop. Uh, I think we might have actually run out of time. So, so normally we'd normally we'd have at some point in the show a lovely offer, but they were here with us now. Aww. So. Uh, uh, and also a lovely editor. Thanks for George. Um, do any of you care to plug any of the stuff that you're doing before we go? Do you want to give us a quick plug? Uh, yeah, go on, go on. Um, 
So one of the things we didn't get to is we've got the BSFA Awards coming up. Our anthology 2084 is up for the best artwork, which is really cool. Um, and we've got a new book by Aaliyah Whiteley coming later this year. Um, Aaliyah's had loads of award nominations for like the beauty and the arrival of missives. A new one's called The Loosening Skin. Um, and a debut by a guy called Peter Haynes, uh, which is Willow by Your Side, which is kind of a sort of folkloric fantasy. They're both absolutely mint. I'm in an anthology that's coming out uh, uh, in April um, called Not So Stories, um, edited by David Thomas Moore, um, and it's a sort of uh, it, it's uh, people of color take on Kipling. We we, we write a lot of um, we we take on that um, just so story format, and um, yeah, it's, it's revisionist in the best possible way. Um, I've got my, the last volume of my, trilo- my Echoes of the Fall trilogy that began with The Tiger and the Wolf is out at the beginning of April. That's The Hyena and the Hawk. Um, and this podcast is, of course, eligible for a Hugo Award if you are in the field to nominate, which I think closes like in about four hours. Uh, if you're listening to us live and you happen to be a Hugo member, a Worldcon member, please vote for us. Uh, that one person who might be able to do that. It might make a difference. It might do. It won't. Um, we never get nominated for anything. We are, we are an award-losing podcast. It's great. <laughs> we, uh, we, we were certificate winning. Yeah, and we we've are. been nominated for a UK podcast. We've got a little shortlisted and everything. We won the podcast of games. And yeah, and we won that. Uh, so it's goodbye from me. <laughs> uh, goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And me. Tulu. Sir Archer.